Hey, everyone. I'm David Chalian, the CNN political director, and welcome to the new CNN political briefing. If you're into politics as much as I am, you know that the 2024 race is already in full swing. We're less than four months away from votes being cast in the early primaries and caucuses. And this week, I'm in California, where seven Republican candidates took to the debate stage at the Reagan Library in Simi Valley, California, hosted by Fox Business, and made their latest attempts to woo Republican primary voters to their cause as they seek their party's nomination. Joe Biden should not be on the picket line. He should be on the southern border. You mentioned Congress and and shutting down government. If they don't keep the government open, they should not get paid. Donald Trump is missing in action. He should be on this stage tonight. The elephant that wasn't in the room was the frontrunner, former President Donald Trump. He chose to skip the debate again and is already attempting to sort of elevate himself as the presumptive nominee of the Republican Party, setting his sights on Joe Biden, as he did in a counter-programming speech he delivered the same evening as the debate in Michigan, where auto workers have been on strike. I want a future that protects American labor, not foreign labor. A future that puts American dreams over foreign profits. My guest today is someone who also visited Michigan on Wednesday and who also didn't appear in the second primary debate, but not because he didn't want to be there. Former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson is here with me today. He is still hitting the campaign trail despite not qualifying for this week's debate. We'll hear his thoughts about how it went, where his presidential campaign stands in the crowded field and at this critical moment in the process, and hopefully get a sense about what it's like day in and day out to be a candidate struggling to gain traction in this race. I have a mission. I have something that's important for our country, and that's why I continue to engage in it. Thank you so much for joining me, Governor. Really appreciate it. Sure. Good to be with you, David. So my first question, of course, on this day after the second debate, where I know against your uh, desires, you weren't there and didn't qualify for it. Did you watch the debate last night? I did. Of course, it was aggravating because I would love to have been at the Reagan Library on the debate. But, you know, somebody compared this to having a bye week in the NFL. You just don't have a game, but you wait for the next one and get ready. So that's what I was doing last night. (laughs) Okay. So, well, that usually, I I imagine most, if we want to stick with the NFL metaphor, players, coaches, they watch the game tape during their bye week. And so I know some political junkies have sort of debate watching rituals. Did you have any rituals that you participated in last night as you were watching? Actually, I try to keep score like a real debate. I was a debater in college, and you sort of uh, keep score that way. It's hard in this environment because there's not any real exchange other than yelling at each other. So nobody won the debate last night. That was the conclusion that I had. Was there a particular moment, question, where you had mentioned that it was aggravating, where it was sort of like peak aggravation because you just felt it was a perfect place that you would have inserted yourself into the debate? Was there something like that last night? Yeah, the key thing was that there was some mentions of Donald Trump, and I expected uh, the candidates to go after Donald Trump more. But then when they went after him, it was basically because he wasn't there on the debate stage. That's not the point. The major point is he's wrong on policy. 
And I was in Detroit yesterday raising the issue that he's going to hurt American workers by this idea of a 10% tariff with all of our trading partners. It would hurt our production and hurt our workers. That's the substantive issue that you go after Donald Trump on. And that's what I would have jumped in the middle of it on. I guess there was some critique of his adding $7 trillion to the debt during the course of his presidency uh, for not finishing the border wall. So they tried to get at him a little bit on substance. But I take your point. There are sort of big moments on, on taking him on were for him not being on the debate stage. So let me ask you this, Governor. When you learned that you were not going to qualify for the debate, was there a moment of reflection and introspection for you personally, uh, with your family, with the campaign team, about what that meant for you? Sure. And of course, leading up to it, first of all, uh, you know, we had the donor threshold. And so it was a question of the polling information. And we had a national poll that had us at 3%, which is the criteria to be on the debate. And so we were waiting uh, on Sunday and on Monday for the polling information to come in because all we needed was one uh, to get on that debate stage. We were hopeful and optimistic that that would happen. It didn't. And so you ask about the reflection. You've got to it's a bump in the road. I mean, we don't have the exposure that the other candidates on the debate stage have. You know, the media is talking about the other candidates, so it's not helpful. That's, you know, a long time in the penalty box. And so you've got to rebuild that. And so we talk to our supporters everywhere. You know, the message is we've got to continue in this fight. We have a realistic chance to get on the next debate stage, and that's what we want to do. I said as a goal that we need to be at 4% at a national or an early state poll by Thanksgiving time. And that gave us a specific criteria that we need to move up to work toward. And it's it's one that, that is achievable. So I noticed you set that goal and I was wondering, it felt somewhat arbitrary. You haven't cracked above 2% in an Iowa or New Hampshire poll in in months if I from most of the polling out there how do you get from here to there especially if you are in the so-called penalty box but you know not getting the exposure so how do you get to meet that 4% by Thanksgiving whenever you look at what we've done over the last 4 months I've been in Iowa I've been in New Hampshire and that investment in those states is going to pay dividends And so you might not see it today, but I think you will see it down the road. So that is something, again, that is very achievable. And then it's also about these states are unique in that, one, they're late deciders because they want to study the candidates. They're very serious about it. And then secondly, they're going to, you know, look at all the candidates before they make a decision. And so it's retail politics that does make a difference in those states, and that has to be the plan. So I have to go people and policy. If you don't have the national media exposure and the earned media, it's people and policy. So uh, I'm making a speech tomorrow to the National Association of Manufacturers, a very substantive policy speech. I'll be going down to meet with a Latino business group in Miami, the largest organization expanding the base, a policy speech there. And then I'm going to be in Iowa and New Hampshire shaking hands Uh, going to small events, large events, and uh, that solution, and that's the style we're going to present. And you mentioned talking to your supporters and delivering the message to them that you still see a viable path here. You know, obviously, 
every presidential campaign needs fuel to exist, and that's money. We're coming up to the end of the third fundraising quarter here. So you're moving around, you're doing these policy speeches, but are the donors buying your argument that there is a viable path? Well, first of all, the conclusion that I need to stay in this race, I need to fight for uh, our beliefs and what we stand for and the alternatives, that doesn't just come from me, but it comes from our supporters. They're the ones that are calling me and saying, we're with you, we're with you, we want to see you stay in there, we want to see you get on the next debate. You ask about you know, the uh, donor base, sure, uh, it makes it more difficult to call up a uh, a donor in California and say, hey, you know, write me a max check because, you know, you weren't on the last debate stage. So it makes it more difficult. That's why you've got to manage your money very carefully. We're not going into debt on this campaign. It's not a self-funded campaign. I don't have $10 million that I can put in. They'd like for me to spend 40% of every day (laughs) on the phone raising money. So you have to spend time raising money. We do that. Obviously, that's not the most enjoyable part of a campaign. And it is important to note, you know, I, you know, I've been eight years as governor. I could go back in the private sector. This is not something I have to have, but it's something that I believe in and I think it's important for our country. And so that's what motivates me. But it's not going to be, you know, a heartache and in terms of of my pocketbook would increase dramatically if I went back into the private sector. So I don't have to have a job. Uh, I have a mission. I have something that's important for our country. And that's why I continue to engage in it. I will say that I enjoy it. Whenever I have the opportunity, like I did, what, last week, to be in New Hampshire, speaking on the same stage in Concord, New Hampshire, that Abraham Lincoln spoke on in 1860 when he made his swing through New Hampshire. Now, that's pretty cool. And if you love history and you love people, you've got to enjoy those moments. That's fantastic. Governor, stay right there. We're going to take a quick break. And we'll have a lot more about you reflecting on how you got to this moment of being on this mission-driven campaign to be president of the United States. Stay with us. This show is sponsored by ADT. Introducing ADT Self-Setup featuring everything from motion sensors to Google Nest cams and the Nest doorbell with a battery or wired option. Easily install the ADT self-setup security system at your convenience. No heavy-duty tools are needed. And if you need help, ADT can provide virtual assistance along the way. ADT self-setup grows, moves, and adapts as your needs change. You can add more products at any time, and your system easily moves wherever life takes you. It also features Nest Cams that can tell the difference between a person, an animal, a vehicle, or with the Nest Doorbell, even a package. Plus, when every second counts, you can trust ADT's 24-7 professional monitoring. You can view video of an alarm event and verify or cancel an alarm with just a tap. Now everyone can get trusted security from ADT installed your way, with no long-term contracts. When the most trusted name in home security adds the intelligence of Google, you've got a home with no worries. Go to ADT.com today or call 1-800-ADT-ASAP. Google Nest Cam, Nest Doorbell, and Nest Aware are trademarks of Google LLC. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life, I sit down with Giles Yeo. It is a problem of our brain influencing the hunger. So hunger is a brain scenario, even though the feeling of hunger comes from your stomach. It's a very new and provocative way of thinking about a condition that impacts more than 40% of Americans. But the thing is, this approach could have big consequences for the way that we treat obesity. Listen to Chasing Life 
wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. We're here with former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, Republican presidential candidate. Governor, you said you don't need to be doing this, but that you feel compelled to be doing this and that you are on a mission, despite what you've acknowledged, it's an uphill climb from where you are to getting the nomination. I would say that for all of your competitors, not named Donald Trump, but for you, part of your mission, at least when you got into this race and how you've been framing the argument for your candidacy throughout, the mission is tied to Donald Trump because you think his presence as still the dominant figure in your party is the wrong direction for your party, and that's central to why you're running. Is that is that a fair? Yes, yes, absolutely. I think we're fighting for the soul of the Republican Party. We want to take principles and govern by those principles for our future to solve problems. I don't see Donald Trump as a person of principle. I see him as a Donald Trump party to himself. I think that's been reflected in this campaign, and it's dangerous for our democracy to see someone that uh, has those motivations of revenge, of autocracy, of having central power in the chief executive versus respecting the different branches of government. So, yes, I am motivated for those reasons. I also think it's important that we have leadership in our country that's not all blue bloods. We need some blue-collar folks that are running and have that background versus simply being a billionaire and saying, hey, I expect this. And I, people want to know your background, and I have a very common background. I've lived in a mobile home. It was a double-wide mobile home, so I'm very proud of that status, raising three children at that time in that mobile home. Uh, I understand affordable housing issues, living from paycheck to paycheck. I understand not having money to put gas in a car and hitchhiking to save money. And I understand working in a factory. And so people look at my career. I've been blessed because I've had high positions of being governor in Congress and head of the DEA. But, you know, I've had my struggles in life. And I believe in fighting for values and principles and that it's uh, worth sacrifice for. So absent Donald Trump, do you think you'd be pursuing the presidency? Well, you know, that's speculative. I mean, first of all— Let me uh, rephrase it. Do you have a memory, the earliest inkling in your mind, where you thought to yourself or looked at yourself in the mirror and said, I think I could be the leader of the free world and the leader of the United States? (laughs) No, it never crossed my mind. Uh, (laughs) I'll tell you, though, and, you know, I never dreamed of running for high political office until— really close to the time that I ran for the United States Congress. Now, I'd lost a race before that, but getting elected to Congress was a big deal for me. And then I never thought about running for president until I became governor and I realized that I had a platform that could lead to that. But really what motivated me was, first of all, Joe Biden's bad policies. And that's an important part of the mix. I do believe we absolutely need to go a different direction in terms of energy, in terms of controlling federal spending, our economy, in terms of respect uh, abroad for the United States. So that motivates me to make sure there's that choice worth fighting for. And of course, as I've said, I don't think Donald Trump takes us the right direction from a Republican Party standpoint, but it was after January 6th and his refusal to engage in the traditions of our democracy to go to 
the swearing in of Joe Biden, where he's the new president of the United States. And to acknowledge that, I say this is the worst of democracy, the worst of our party, and he should not be president again. So then I purposed, if not someone else, it's me. You mentioned you would run for office both successfully and unsuccessfully. I think you've won more when your name is on the ballot than lost when your name is on the ballot. But when you lost these elections, does any of what you learned in that moment inform you now as a candidate? Yes. First of all, by running, you advance your beliefs and ideas that are important. And when I have lost a Senate race or an AG race in Arkansas, Uh, We didn't really have a Republican Party, and we were building that and the ideas based upon Ronald Reagan and a more conservative approach to government. So while I came short, I advanced important objectives, and I fought the machine in Arkansas. So that instructs me. And secondly, it makes me realize, my goodness, you know, I've lost races. I've gone back, and I've, I've made a living. I enjoyed my family, and life is made up a lot more than just simply the win or loss in the political column. Winning is important, and that's why you run. But I know that uh, my life has much more value than simply the win and loss score uh, on a political race. You noted you've been in public life uh, for the big bulk majority of your years, a young U.S. attorney in the Reagan Justice Department. And I just was wondering, given how your career kind of tracks with a young Bill Clinton in Arkansas as well. Do you have a memory of when you first met Bill Clinton and what your impression was? (laughs) Well, sure. Whenever I was going to law school, he was a professor at law school. He and Hillary both. And he ran at that time for the United States Congress. So, of course, I met him during that campaign. I met him at law school. My impression was, wow, he's ambitious. He's young. And he's very, very talented, and he's very Democrat. <laughs> so, you know, that was uh, all my impressions. And we've, you know, been on opposite sides of the political spectrum throughout my career. I was the United States attorney. I had the responsibility to prosecute his brother, Roger, and he handled that well in terms of then-Governor Bill Clinton. He understood in his book that I probably saved his brother's life by that prosecution. Uh, And then I was chairman of the party in Arkansas when Bill Clinton was running for president of the United States. And so uh, we've been on opposite sides, uh, but a respectful relationship. And I have admiration for his incredible talent and devotion to uh, to the public good. Yeah, probably in that first meeting, you could not have envisioned that you would one day be an impeachment manager in the House for (laughs) prosecuting an impeachment case against Bill Clinton all those many years later. Against the president for my home state, it was a challenging time for our country and for me. But, you know, the lesson is the Constitution worked, the process worked, and uh, we accept the outcome. You mentioned uh, my public career. People just don't uh, realize that I've had a breadth of a private career as well. And while I started Bentonville's first FM radio station, I put it on the air as a broadcaster. But I also uh, practice law, and that's been a joy of mine. You know, I've always gone back to practicing law. I've tried over 80 jury trials. I've enjoyed the courtroom, being in front of a jury, and fighting for justice. And that's really what you do in the political arena, but you do it in the courtroom. And 
I look at the debates we've had uh, like yesterday and the first debate that I participated in. I wish I had a, a federal judge who was there presiding over that debate because uh, we'd get a lot more accomplished. Well, now the jury are the voters of Iowa and New Hampshire that kick off this process that you're trying to make the case to. And as you are committed to staying on the campaign trail and you talked about how much you enjoy it, has there been a moment on the trail that has surprised you in this process where you just said, wow, I did that was not on my bingo card today as a presidential candidate? Oh, it happens a lot. And that's what's great about Iowa and New Hampshire. They're ready for questions. And so you know, I had an event and someone raised their hand and said, what's your position on the Jones Act? And I hadn't thought about the Jones Act since I was in law school. It has to do with admiralty law. And I said, I'm going to have to get back with you on that one. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and so you get those kind of questions, but also people who, you know, I went up to a lady and I said, hey, I, I'm Asa Hutchinson and I'm running for president of the United States. And she looks at me and said, sure. And I'm Gladys, and I'm running for vice president. I mean, she didn't believe me. She thought I was being sarcastic. You know, so you run into that, too. Did you get her to commit to caucus or to primary for you? No, but we had a good laugh about it all. She loved it. She loved it. Governor Hutchinson, thank you so much for giving us a sense of this moment for you in the presidential campaign and where you are at and also what it is like day to day to be out on the trail making the case to voters. It is uh, very insightful, and I appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. David, great to be with you. Thank you. That's it for this week's edition of the CNN Political Briefing. We'll be back next Friday, October 6th, and nearly every Friday after that with a new episode. And as we gear up for yet another pivotal election cycle, I want to take you inside the latest developments of the 2024 race from the campaign trail and beyond. Join us each week as we speak with candidates, campaign managers, party leaders, pollsters, the political reporters on the ground in the key states. And we want to hear from you. Is there a question you'd like answered about this election season? Is there a guest you really want to hear from? Give us a call at 301-842-8338 or send us an email at cnnpoliticalbriefing at gmail.com and you might just be featured in a future episode of the podcast. Don't forget to tell us your name, where you're from, and how we can reach you and if you give us permission to use this recording on the podcast. CNN Political Briefing is a product of CNN Audio. Our episodes are produced by Krista Bowe and Taylor Galgano. Our senior producer is Haley Thomas. Greg Peppers is our supervising producer. And Dan DeZula is our technical director. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of CNN Audio. Thanks so much for listening. Until next week.